You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 16, and also the first episode of our second season. We here at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. All of our conversations are judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. I'm your host, Emily Carney, and I'm so happy you are here. I'm an attorney, a mother to a rambunctious two-year-old, and also an almost one-year-old golden beetle puppy. My husband, daughter, dog, and I live in sunny Southern California. Thanks for tuning in to our new season. And I'm so excited for you to hear my chat with Emily Beckman today, who is a school counselor and provides many useful tips for how to teach our children values. Now, some of you may be thinking, why a school counselor? Well, a school counselor's role has changed dramatically since we were children. Now they teach values in school proactively that amount to emotional intelligence. And as many of you probably are familiar with the studies about emotional intelligence, how it's so important that we have it and that our children have it because it's an indicator of success in relationships, at school, and ultimately in your career. It's really important that we teach our kids things like empathy and respect and kindness. Something else that Emily gets into, which I found really interesting, is what exactly the definition of bullying is. We really like to throw around that word bullying, but sometimes it's misused, so it's important to know what the definition is. And also, she talks about how to recognize signs in your children if they are being bullied and how they can be a bystander or an upstander to bullying and how you can teach that to your children. I really enjoyed this chat with Emily because she provides useful tips for teaching these values to even our younger children. When I was chatting with Emily, I just found it really hilarious because when she was talking about the importance of making sure that you choose your words wisely with your spouse and talking to your children, I was trying to think, why does Kate use these words that we don't use with each other? And then it just hit me that we use those same words with our dog. (laughs) So maybe don't make mistake number one of teaching your child respect as my husband and I already made because we were talking to our golden doodle puppy saying things like, go away, Teddy, no Teddy, this way, Teddy. And now that's how our daughter talks to us. So (laughs) anyway, just a little lightheartedness on that subject that's in line with our motto that you don't have to be a perfect mom. And we already made mistake number one of that. But now we're trying to talk to our dog with a little bit more respect, even though he's extremely mischievous. Anyway, all joking aside, Emily does a great job in this episode of providing practical tips and also resources if you want to learn more or do some activities with your children at home. So without further ado, here's our amazing conversation with Emily Beckman. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. I know I've been wanting to have you for a while and you're about to have your baby, what, like any day now, right? When is your baby due? Yeah, about four weeks, February 8th. That's so exciting. Yeah. So thanks again for being on our show. And at first, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly you do? Sure. So I'm a school counselor and I work in a public K through eight school. So it's kind of a unique setting because I get to see the social, emotional and behavioral development from kindergarten to eighth grade, um, which I love. It makes every day different. Um, And so I got my degree in psychology in undergrad, and then I went to grad school to get my master's in counseling and got my pupil personal services credential to work as a school counselor in schools. 
I know I mentioned this to you before, but I don't really know that much about what school counselors do. And I feel like it's also changed a lot over the years. I think I just know what they did when I was younger and growing up. And I feel like that was a little bit more traditional. But I really like what you said, how they've expanded, you know, and how they're integrated more into classrooms. So I'd love for you to talk about what you do now as a school counselor. Yeah. So a school counselor really is um, a person on campus to act as an advocate for students in mental health. Um, In our district, we specifically focus on social-emotional development and behavior. We do support academics, but it's not really the traditional old-school role of a school counselor where they were sitting in their office scheduling classes and kind of waiting for students to come to them to respond. Instead, we really try to do prevention and early intervention by having classroom guidance lessons where we push into the classroom and we get to do lessons with the students and give them skills early on to hopefully prevent crises or problems coming up later as they're developing through middle school. That's great. So what are some of the things that you teach the kids in the school? I know that you had mentioned to me earlier that you try to teach them values such as kindness and respect and then also what bullying is and what it isn't. I know we can probably get into bullying. I feel like that's kind of like a separate topic later. But what do you actually teach the kids and what sort of skills are you um, instructing them on in the classroom? Yeah, so a big push in education right now is to implement social-emotional learning for students in the classroom. And basically what that is is giving them the skills to manage their emotions, to know what empathy, kindness, and respect are, and then giving them the communication skills to help solve problems and manage conflicts between themselves in a healthy way. So we push into the classroom six times a year. And we adopted an evidence-based curriculum called Second Step, where we actually have pre-made lessons, which is great. Um, They implement videos and scenarios for the kids, which helps them learn the skills and then practice them in the classroom. So the biggest topic areas are what empathy is, what kindness and respect are, what happens in their bodies when they're having a strong emotion and how to manage their emotions. And then how to handle conflicts in a healthy way. And as you mentioned, we do also go over what bullying is and what it isn't and how to be a bystander or what we often now are calling an upstander. So someone who stands up to bullying when they see it happening. Hmm, That's so interesting. I've never heard of upstander. So I can't wait to ask you more about that a little bit later. Um, I know most of the moms who listen to our podcast have younger children, you know, not quite school age, five and under or early elementary school age kids. So maybe we can talk about what you teach the younger kids in elementary school. So maybe some moms who are listening are about to send their kids to kindergarten, or maybe they're in first, second, or third grade. How do you teach them what empathy, kindness, and respect are at that younger age? Yeah, so in the kindergarten level, particularly, We first kind of just go over different emotions that people have um, at a pretty basic level, you know, what it means to be sad, angry, mad, happy, you know, good emotions as well. Um, And then really 
teaching them at their developmental what empathy is. So when you have an emotion, how do you see it? How do you know what someone is feeling? So, you know, you can look at their face. What is their face like? You know, uh, in our classrooms, we have videos or pictures of faces and scenarios where the kids will then be able to identify, you know, looking at their eyes and their mouth and their body language. What emotion do you think they're feeling? And then being able to name that feeling and put themselves in that person's shoes. You know, what is it like to feel happy? What is it like to feel sad? And when you can see that in someone else and you put yourself in their shoes and you think, oh, when I'm sad, what do I want someone to do for me? You know, um, so kind of just giving them the verbiage, the words of, of the different emotions and what empathy is, and then trying to give them examples of when you see what someone else is feeling, how can you respond to show them that you know that's what they're feeling? That's great. I like that definition, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I feel like that's a pretty easy way for younger kids to understand that. Um, so do you think that if moms who are listening, if they have toddlers, is that something that they can also start to like implement into their children's lives to kind of explain it? Or what recommendations do you have to try to maybe if moms listening want to prep their kids to kind of maybe be ahead of the curve or give them a preview of what these different values are? Yeah, I now being a mom myself, definitely like try to notice ways with my toddler to show her throughout the day in different moments or things that happen, you know, ways that I can show her empathy already. And I know I totally get it as a mom. Like most days you're just getting from the start of the day to the end of the day in the busyness of everything. So it can be hard sometimes to remember, you know, to point out those things as you see them happening. But um, especially in their interactions, their social interactions with other kids or with you and your spouse, when you see them doing something that maybe is not the right choice or both when you see them doing the right choice, pointing that out to them. So recently with our toddler, we've noticed that like sometimes when she gets really overly excited, she'll like start wanting to hit our face. And it's super easy to just want to say, no, we don't hit mommy, you know. But one thing you can do is say, you know, it really hurts mommy's feelings when you hit her or it makes mommy sad when you hit her. How do you think that feels for mommy, you know? So giving the again, the verbiage or using words to help them see how their behavior makes someone else feel. Um, And also praising when they do it right. So when I see her giving her baby doll hugs or kisses, or when I see her hold another little girl's hand, I'll say like, oh, you're being so kind to your baby, or you were so nice to your friend, you know, pointing out the things that they do right as well. And um, praising when they are showing positive emotions and positive um, behavior towards others. That reminds me of recently, just about maybe a month or so ago, I did something similar with my daughter, Kate, who she just turned two. And for the first time, I just decided, well, I'm going to just tell her that, you know, she made me sad or that I'm feeling sad. And I could just tell in her face that she never actually thought that I could be sad, you know, that Mm -hmm. she just I don't know, maybe she just thought that I was some superhuman or I just never had emotions and she was the only one with emotions. So it was just interesting to see her face and her expression when she realized, oh, mom, mama gets sad too, you know? Yeah. So I really like that. Um, so we covered empathy and then kindness. What about respect? How, how do you explain that to, I guess, the, the younger, the age group? 
So our school really does talk about the golden rule a lot. And so our younger kids, we tend to phrase respect in that way and tell them, you know, what's the golden rule? The golden rule is treating others how you would want to be treated. And when you phrase it that way, it really goes hand in hand with empathy, because when you think about how you want to be treated, it then helps you treat others that way as well. So if you want to be treated with kindness, then it helps you show others that respect by treating them with kindness. Um, Then for the older kids, obviously, upper elementary school and into middle school, You can get a little more deep with them as far as their cognitive development. But for younger kids, that's kind of the approach that we take is really bringing it back to how you like to be treated and putting yourself in the shoes of others with empathy to then treat them with respect the same way. That makes a lot of sense. So I noticed that you said that you go a little bit deeper for the older ages. And I do want to get a little bit into what you teach the older age groups, maybe just briefly, because I know that some of our listeners do have kids who are, are, you know, in junior high and high school. So maybe if you could just kind of encapsulate what you add on to what you've already talked about, um, just kind of like a high-level overview. Yeah, so for the older students, we have a little bit more um, conflicts arise, often sometimes fights or disagreements or people just having mean moments, not being kind to others. So we talk a lot about conflict mediation and problem solving. And with respect, we really go into, again, like with the golden rule, treating others the way that they would want to be treated. But what does that actually look like in social interactions, whether that's with a peer or a significant other? You know, middle school, they start to have the boy-girl interactions. And what does respect of opposite sex look like, too? Um, So we talk a lot about respectful language, respectful communication, um, going through like what's passive communication versus assertive communication and aggressive assertive or aggressive communication, especially at the middle school age. A lot of times when they have a strong emotion, you know, the um, amygdala in our brain is the area where our strong emotions take place and it's an automatic part of our brain. So our bodies just automatically respond when we have a strong emotion and especially middle schoolers they don't really have that cognitive ability yet to take a step back and think before they react so a lot we find that a lot of the conflicts that arise come from just reacting to a strong emotion without taking a step back and thinking what are going to be the consequences of what i say or am is what i'm about to say respectful communication So we really try to push assertive communication where you talk with your peers or with another person in a respectful and calm, healthy way versus passive communication, you know, is kind of where you're very shy and quiet and can kind of get walked all over. And then on the other end of the spectrum, aggressive communication can really cause a lot of our conflicts and issues because they just react and don't think through the words that they're using and don't realize that their approach is not respectful and then can lead to further conflicts. So um, we get into a little bit more of like social skills with the older kids and really try to to show them healthy ways of managing both their emotions and ways of managing their problems to communicate in a respectful way with others. When you were talking about the difference between passive and then also being assertive, I was just thinking that I feel like a lot of us moms can actually maybe take some pointers from that because I know I myself am continually reminding myself that 
being passive isn't a good thing and that it is good to be assertive and then not let people walk all over you. But then you don't want to go the opposite way where you kind of hurt someone else's feelings. But I feel like especially moms in general feel like we kind of maybe need to be a little bit more assertive (laughs) than we usually are. Um, So how can parents kind of reinforce, uh, I guess, what they're learning, like kids are learning in school? And then also, maybe if parents want to just teach their kids more about these different values that you're talking about, how can parents go about that? Yeah, so there are some really great resources out there all about social-emotional learning. One website is called castle.org. It's C-A-S-E-L, and that stands for Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning. And they have a ton on their website as far as what social-emotional learning is and ways that parents can help foster that in their kids. Um, They've got book resources and talking points. Um, I highly recommend that website. And then also Committee for Children is another website, committeeforchildren.org. They have a ton of resources on social-emotional learning, parent guides, teacher guides, um, talking points, and book recommendations. For younger kids, there's an author that's really great. Her name is Julia Cook, and she's actually a former teacher and former school counselor. And she writes social stories that really could be as early as preschool, but definitely kinder and early elementary that deal with empathy, respect, communication, behavior, all of the social-emotional learning topics that we've talked about. So those are some great books for younger kids. Um, One book that I recommend to parents a lot as far as for themselves to read is by John Gottman. Um, It's called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. And I know emotional intelligence is something that's definitely come up more and more over the last decade um, as schools are realizing that, you know, not only is academic intelligence important, but also emotional, social, emotional intelligence. Um, so that's one one book that's really good touching on that for parents to read. Um, and I know we haven't really talked a ton about bullying yet, but one great resource for kind of what bullying is and what it isn't and resources for standing up to bullying is uh, stopbullying.gov. Is John Gottman, is that the same one who wrote the marriage books or is that completely different? Yes, same psychologist. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I was going to say when you're mentioning all the values and how kids should learn it, I was thinking of emotional tel- intelligence because that's such a buzzword right now and everyone you know, everyone knows that that's basically an indicator for success in your adult life at work, you know, in your relationships, etc. Um, I do want to get into bullying, too. I know you just mentioned the resource for bullying. Uh, I thought it was interesting when we were chatting a little bit earlier that you said what bullying isn't um, and what it is. And I just thought that that was really eye-opening because I didn't really even realize what the definition of bullying is. So, Could you explain what exactly bullying is? The word bullying gets thrown out and used a lot now. And so I think that's why it's hard to kind of know the difference between what is actual bullying and what is either a mean moment or a conflict. So a conflict is when there's equal power represented between the two people and there's a disagreement of some kind. They don't agree, but both people don't agree. 
that's what we call a conflict. Um, whereas a mean moment can happen, obviously, in both kids and adults, right? Someone just being unkind. And it happens one time. It's not happening more than once. It's just one mean moment. Whereas bullying is an imbalance of power. So one person is really coming down on another person, either through physical aggression, um, verbal aggression, or social aggression, and it's happening more than once. So it's not just one isolated incident, but it's continuous, and that balance of power is off, and um, the person feels like it's purposeful, right? Like the person who is hurting the other person is doing it. What are some of the warning signs that parents can recognize in their children if they are being bullied at school? Because I feel like I'm always hearing on the news about some kid who something terrible happened to them and the parents and no one else even knew that they were being bullied at school. And then also, I'm not sure if you talk about like online bullying, if that's part of it as well. Um, But maybe you could just touch on what what the signs are for what bullying looks like in a kid. Yeah. For younger kids, it often shows up through like school avoidance or even physical complaints, having stomach aches or saying they don't feel good, they don't want to go to school, and kind of a sudden change in behavior where they used to love school or used to not ever complain about those kinds of things. That can be one sign. Um, Obviously, them talking about issues with peers at school, saying they don't like recess or they don't like playing on the playground, especially if they mention a kid, certain kid's name or they say they don't like playing with kids at school. Those can be warning signs. Um, But honestly, the biggest way that you can help your kids know that it's okay to talk about those things is the foundation for communication that you lay at home. And I think that you can start as early as the toddler age, you know, like we were saying, showing them the different emotions and exemplifying empathy, pointing out what empathy and respect are to them at a young age and having a healthy, open dialogue with them throughout their early childhood years so that they know, hey, when something someone is not treating you right at school or something's off at school, the first person I know I can talk to about it is my parents. Other than, you know, teaching kids the values, which I love in the early years, uh, what are some other ways that you can encourage kids to just kind of open up, be, open up to you at home? Because I sometimes I feel like that might be a matter of personality, mm-hmm. at least for everyone that I know, that some people just tend to be more open. Some people tend to not be as open. You have to kind of pry. Is there a way where you can just kind of lay it out, I don't know, instruct your kids, no matter what their personality is, to just kind of get them to open up to you? You're so right that with each kid, it might look a little different, especially some kids are externalizers. So they like to talk about everything that they're feeling and about their day. They externalize and talk about all that they're going through. And then some kids are more internalizers. So they're a little bit harder to get to open up and share what they're feeling. They tend to keep it inside. So um, your externalizers, you're not going to have much of an issue. They'll probably share with you pretty easily. But if you do have a child that's more of an internalizer, 
Um, For the younger age, maybe dedicating some like quality time with that child, one-on-one time, undistracted, you know, phone away and TV off, either going on a special outing to a park or somewhere, something special that the two of you like to do together. Um, And then for older kids, especially like more the middle school where, you know, you pick them up from school and ask them, how's your day? And all you get is good or fine. Um, Oftentimes... Having situations that aren't pressured, so where they don't feel forced to make eye contact, they don't feel like they're being put on the spot. So sometimes talking in the car actually is a good time to talk because they don't have to make that eye contact. Um, Carpool, I hear parents say a lot that they having multiple kids in their car and just hearing the kids talk about the day that they learn a lot in carpool. Um, Or even bedtime too. A lot of kids... If you have a bedtime routine, having some time in that routine to debrief about the day, ask them a lot of more open-ended questions rather than closed-end questions. So not things where they can just say yes or no, but where they have to give more of an answer. Um, Bedtime also seems to be a time when kids, you know, kind of start to slow down and then their mind kind of starts going because the rest of them is calm. They're getting ready to go to bed and especially internalizers tend to their thoughts run when they're calm and laying down at night, getting ready to go to sleep. So sometimes that can be a good time for someone who is a little bit harder to get to talk to feel a little more comfortable. Um, But definitely having that quality time with your kids that you know need it more so than others. Yeah, that's really good advice. It's funny when you're talking about the internal, what what did you say? The internal? Internalizer. Internalizers. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like that might be me because I'm like, oh, whenever I go to sleep, I always think about all these things. <laughs> so maybe that's what I am. Um, I know that you mentioned earlier about the difference between uh, bystanders and upstanders for the bullying. So I, I wrote a note that I didn't want to forget to ask you more about that. So what what are bystanders? And I'm, obviously I know what a bystander is, but what about an upstander? So a bystander is anyone that witnesses bullying, anyone that sees it happening. And really bystander and upstander are the same. It's just a change in terminology that they've kind of used recently. Um, by saying upstander, it's really trying to show kids that you know, a bystander, you can see it happening and you can either choose to say something or you can choose to be quiet. If you choose to be an upstander, you're standing up to the bullying that you see happening. So you're not just going to stand there watching it happen, let it go by. You're going to stand up for that person. So not only are you going to say something to an adult to make sure you get help from an adult for the person being bullied, but you're also going to talk to the person being bullied and say, hey, are you okay? You know, how are you feeling? I can tell from what just happened, you might not be feeling so great right now showing them that empathy by not only getting them the help that they need, but going up to them and talking to them saying, hey, I'm, I see you and I'm here for you and I want to help. I wanted to also ask you about the role that social media plays a little bit more and just technology, because I feel like that that's really reshaping kids' interactions and even adults' interactions, because you were mentioning, you know, to have quality time with your kids, you have to put your phone down and actually pay attention to them. How is the online world, I guess, influencing kids in the elementary school age years? And how, what do you see the impact of technology in their lives? The research on it is actually pretty staggering. Um, in our school, I mean, I see 
social media use and cell phone use as early as fourth grade, which is very young. Um, it more so it's you know more prevalent amongst the middle schoolers, but uh, in the research, it's actually pretty interesting to see the trend from around. 2008, which if you remember in 2008 was around when the iPhone came out. And then ever since we've had smartphones, social media has just increased since then. And the mental health effects, the amount that mental health has increased as far as risk factors. So things like depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, as young as 11, like 11 to 14 year olds, especially that age group, um, the risk factors have greatly increased since social media has come into our lives. Obviously, those topics, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, mental health, they're very complex topics. So it's not at all to say that social media is the cause or that smartphones is the cause, but it's definitely a factor in the trends that we've seen, the fact that it's increased so much and that really this generation now doesn't know what it's like to grow up without smartphones and technology and social media. Um, There's a really good book called iGen, um, lowercase i and then G-E-N, about this generation actually and just some of the research that's been done on the impact of smartphones and social media Highly recommend that book. But yeah, it's it's definitely playing a major role in our kids' lives. So um, every family has to decide for themselves what they want their boundaries to be. But I highly encourage parents to have that conversation and set boundaries as far as, okay, when are we going to let our kids have a phone? Do we want them to have access to social media? If we do decide them to decide to let them have it, do we want to monitor it and to what degree? And there's lots and lots of resources for parents out there as far as limiting the use of social media, having restrictions on it, being able to monitor it yourself. Um, so it it really is up to each family to decide how that how they want to do that and what that looks like. But it's something that I don't think is ever going away now that it's in our lives. So it's definitely a factor. I've talked about that a lot with my husband and some friends, just how, you know, I'm just so glad I'm not growing up in my adolescent years with social media and smartphones, because I remember the first time I opened up my Facebook account, I was a freshman in college. And then even just having the social media in college was just a little strange. I know everyone was just kind of trying to figure it out for the first time. And so it was just kind of like a unique place to be. But I don't know, even in the early years of social media, I feel like there wasn't as much damage being done because it was just kind of, oh, this is something cool that you were just posting photos or random silly statuses in college or whatnot. Um, But yeah, it's just developed into so much more now and it's just so much more complex. So I can't even imagine going through puberty and then adding on social media and smartphones and all of that. You mentioned that technology and smartphones and social media are just one of the factors for the increased risk of anxiety and depression in younger children. What are some of the other factors or are there any other like major factors that you've seen that um, why children do tend to have more depression and anxiety now? So there are definitely risk factors, but also protective factors. Um, One thing that I just personally believe is that the family truly is the foundation. So, so much originally just stems from the home 
Um, and that can be a really good positive thing. Or I know in some homes, there's a lot of other factors involved that sometimes make that a really difficult situation. So um, the home and the family life is definitely one factor. Um, family history. So if you have a family history of mental illness, um, definitely like if you have a family history of suicidal ideation or, or suicide completions, you know, that's a risk factor. Um, social economic status is a risk factor. Um, those are the biggest ones that I have, I typically see in the schools. Um, but then on the flip side, you also have protective factors. So just as I said, those things, the family can also be a huge protective factor for, um, mental health. So when you have a child who feels secure, who feels they belong, who feels they have a place and they have people to talk to, people that love them. Um, having multiple people that they can go to, that's a huge protective factor. So not only is the family huge, but having support systems in school, having support systems in sports or in church, in activities, you know, where you have supportive adults and peers in your life in other areas outside the home too is also definitely a protective factor. Um, so there's a, a lot that parents and families can do just on a foundational level, right, of setting that groundwork, helping your kid feel loved, like they belong, they matter, they have a place, um, and they have all of these people here to support them. That goes a long, long way. When you were talking about how family life can make either a positive impact or negative impact on a child's life. That kind of reminds me of a book I'm reading called Hillbilly Elegy. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but I guess it's kind of a popular book that it seems like everyone's reading right now. But it's basically about um, an attorney. He went to Yale Law School, but he grew up just kind of, I, for lack of a better term, with white trash guy type family. Um, but it was crazy how he was saying that he used to always love school, but then when his mom was going through a rough patch you know she was divorced and then had unstable relationships that then he just was depressed and like doing poorly in school and then when he ended up going to live with his grandparents who provided him with a stable environment how it just completely switched and it was different so it's just crazy to see how the same person in different home environments can just be a completely different person at school so that's crazy I guess, are there any tips um, in closing? Because I know we're running out of time. I'm just looking for maybe a little bit more practical tips. Is it just like what normal families do or what maybe if parents are listening um, and they want to make sure that they're really doing what they should be doing at home and reinforcing that their kids have a place at home? What would that look like? It really is in your day-to-day -day interactions with each other as a family and with peers and friends. Um, so as you see different interactions in your children, either with each other, sibling to sibling or with their friends, pointing out different things, whether they're good things or bad things, naming them and sh talking about them openly with your child, showing them, you know, again, like we talked about empathy and respect and different emotions, but even just showing them healthy communication, you know, and you even exemplify that with your spouse, right? I think we often forget that our kids are listening and they're watching. And so we exemplify that in all of our interactions. So showing them, you know, mommy and daddy talk calmly, respectfully, kindly, but sometimes we talk through hard things and we talk about it openly. We don't let it sit or we don't fight about it. You know, we showing them that healthy form of communication and then 
you know, not only with your spouse, but doing that with them, pointing it out with their siblings, with their peers. Um, and I, I really do think a huge, huge piece is showing them not only how to talk, but how to listen. And now being a mom, I totally empathize with other parents that have talked to me before about how when you see your kid hurting or you see something wrong, you just want to fix it. You go into fix mode and you want to do anything you can to make it better for them. But sometimes, especially a little bit older age kids, maybe middle elementary to middle school, they don't necessarily want you to fix it. They just want you to listen and to be there and to um, validate what it is that they're going through and feel they want to feel heard and seen and known. And you can do that without having to fix their problems. Um, I don't know if that's specific enough for what you were asking, but it really is a lot of your day-to-day interactions um, with your child and within your family system that can lay that foundation for them at school. Are there any other resources in closing that you would recommend to parents to read just to kind of lay a good foundation before they they start school or maybe they're already in school and parents just want to kind of supplement it? Yeah, like I was talking about with social emotional learning, that Castle website and Committee for Children, highly recommend those. Um, and there's so much on the Internet. I mean, now you can just Google, you know, books on communication, books on empathy, books on raising emotionally intelligent children, right? And there's so many resources, um, so many psychologists and and good resources, websites, books out there. Um, with, that is one good thing about technology now is we have access to everything at our fingertips. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know what people did before Google, <laughs> so especially as a parent. Uh, well, Emily, thank you so much. This was, this was so informative, and I know I learned so much, and I'm sure everyone listening did as well. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on.